0: Welcome to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm Larry Lannon. This is a chance for local people or people with a local connection to sit down and talk about what is going on with them in the fishers community. This is a part of my local Fishers, Indiana news blog that began in January of 2012. I started these podcasts in 2016 and have been going ever since. Now, here's the latest edition of the LarryInFishers.com podcast. And with the Hamilton County Emergency Operations Center, it's near the sheriff's office in the jail in in the Noblesville area. And my guest today is Shane Booker. He is the executive director for Hamilton County Emergency Management. So, Shane, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. It's my pleasure. And uh, I think all of us in Hamilton County have somehow been impacted by the work that you do. And I'm just going to really touch the surface today in the podcast that we have. And I know, I took took a look at your background, you have some very extensive credentials in law enforcement, emergency management, both uh, in government and the private sector. Uh, You've worked uh, not just locally, but uh, at the national and international level. I know you are Uh, are from noblesville i think uh, originally if i remember correctly so i assume that's why you ended up here
1: it is i've really been fortunate to have you know quite an extensive career in public safety and uh we worked in the private sector and that was really you know interesting and learned a lot there but at the same time you know my heart really is in that public safety public service you know area and Helping someone for a profit is not the same as doing it because it's the right thing to do, and I really enjoyed you know the, that aspect of being in the public sector and when the opportunity came uh, open for the emergency management director here it 's quite an honor for me to serve my my home county
0: and uh, as I understand it, it was uh, in two thousand and eighteen when you Uh, assumed this position, I was looking back and saw that uh, The Current, and Nobles of the Current Publishing, which uh, publishes various local papers uh, in the area, uh, they uh, printed a story about you when when you were named to the Post, and I want to just quote that story for you. Uh, He said his goals in his new role include improving the agency's training program standard operating procedures, social media presence, reviewing and updating the agency's emergency plans, helping ensure municipalities are aware of recovery aspects required by the, the Federal Emergency Management Agency of FEMA. That was that was a lot that you were willing to take on when you started. How do you think you have, are doing about four years later?
1: I think we're doing really well. We've been able to, to I think, you know, go through and meet all of those goals that we initially set out Uh, we didn't have a lot of standard operating procedures and we we now have you know several and that's really important i think just to ensure that there's continuity and there's that point of reference and then at the same time we've really updated our plans to ensure that they you know outline The different components that we need and a lot of that we were working on and getting to where we needed to be in our opinion and then right now we're in the process and we have been for about a year and a half now of becoming accredited through the national emergency management agency or association rather and that is really helping us even refine our processes and procedures even further
0: Well, like I said, you just gave me a tour of your uh, emergency operations center and the 911 center, which is nearby. Very impressive. You seem to be right there with technology, and that's so important in this day and age.
1: It really is. There's a lot that we rely upon, you know, to be able to collect information through social media. And, you know, we can have the nicest COC in the world, but if you don't have the processes behind it, it's not going to work. And that's one of the things that really has helped us is having the right technology and being able to implement that, train to it, but then most importantly, making sure it meets our operational needs. So as things need improved, our systems are agile enough that we can make those changes to help ensure we're doing Doing what we need to do efficiently.
0: And you have, uh, I think we talked earlier, you have nine full-time employees on your staff, a couple of a part-timers and a, a, a large contingent of volunteers. I would have to think, and I, this is a comment that I made, and I think I want to point this out, the only way Hamilton County could have an emergency operations center and operations such as you have would be with the support of the county commissioners and the county council. They've certainly been willing to support your work and to fund it.
1: We really are fortunate. That, you know, there's a lot that that comes into play, and we really appreciate the support of the the Board of Commissioners and being able to provide guidance and you know giving us that latitude to do what needs to be done to ensure we have a strong program. And the County Council, you know, they've been just amazing with us. We do get a lot of federal grants, but when we receive those grants from FEMA, one of the challenges is that it takes about a year before we actually get that money back. And so the county council has been very supportive in allowing us to use money from the county general fund, but then to reimburse that through the grant process. And, you know, unfortunately, not every county is in that financial position to be able to front money like that for a year. But we really do appreciate what the the council has done to really build a strong insurance program for Hamilton County.
0: And uh, the county obviously has confidence that you, are going to get that reimbursement because you have to to dot the i's and cross the t's to make sure that money does come in from that reimbursement so the council obviously has that that uh, confidence in your operation Uh, i want to ask about something that's already happened we are in early march in fact we're recording this the morning of saturday march the 12th and just not that long ago and I I'll, I'll, I live in Fisher, so I was part of this. Uh, my my wife leaves her phone on at night. I don't leave mine on, but she left hers on, and boom, we got that immediate tornado warning at 3 a.m. the other Sunday morning. I think what is about a, what is one or two weeks ago. It's it's uh, it was it was uh, it woke me up pretty quickly. Then I heard the sirens go off after that. Uh, what really surprised me is, you know, I try to keep track of weather. I, you know, I'm kind of a newsy, and I do the, the blog, and I do these podcasts still as a retiree. But uh, I really didn't get it an, a chance to, to see, or at least I didn't see, in all the sources that I, I observe regularly, that severe weather was likely to happen. You know, sometimes you go to bed knowing, well, you know, there could be a warning or a watch comes out. And boom, this tornado warning happened at 3 a.m. Uh, was this just sort of an unusual, atmospheric, uh, freaky kind of thing that happened? Or explain how that all Came together, came together as best you know it
1: well we did have those really nice you know 70 degree days that were leading up to that and then as that cold front approached we really did not anticipate any severe weather we you know pay attention and and are a storm ready county here in hamilton county and that is something that we have to go through a lot of you know, different processes with the national weather service to achieve that um that designation. But for us, we also watch the Storm Prediction Center. And normally, if we were to see a watch, you know, that typically would mean that we would be in a slight risk for severe weather. The lower category below that is marginal, and then below that is just a chance of thunderstorms. So the Storm Prediction Center didn't even have us in a marginal risk for severe weather. They said it was just, you know, a chance of thunderstorms. So when the weather radio went off, you know, on my nightstand, saying that there is a Uh, severe thunderstorm watch then for us we went ahead and automatically you know activated what we call storm operations where we bring at least four people into the emergency operations center who are there to monitor that coordinate with people out in the field both public safety and amateur radio operators who are trained storm spotters and then when that warning Uh, was issued for the tornado which was based on rotation even though it was just at that that threshold of whether or not should they issue a warning i was told by the national weather service they went ahead and issued that tornado warning and then our meteorologist here in the emergency operations center activated the sirens for those areas that were in that warning polygon
0: Interesting that, and I want to ask you about that because this was a tornado warning that was issued, even though no tornado or funnel cloud had been sighted. But uh, I I have noticed, and I'm no expert in this, but I try to follow it as a layperson, uh, that the technology that's now used by some of the TV stations and the National Weather Service can detect the circular motion of a cloud, and that's enough sometimes to uh, issue a tornado warning. I mean, that that is pretty uh, remarkable if you think about it.
1: It is. One of the things that we look at and th- doing the same thing that the National Weather Service is doing is most people are familiar with that traditional radar image that's showing us per- per- precipitation Mm -hmm. Uh, but one of the things that we look at is that base reflectivity or in that base i'm sorry not reflectivity but the base velocity and that base velocity is trying to look at what are the clouds and the wind patterns doing in that cloud and as we get more of those basically the red and green colors as those are more close together and we start seeing that uh you know kind of fight between the the cold and the the hotter air and we see winds going in different directions. Then that really can be an indication that there 's possible rotation in that cloud, and it 's better to be you know safe than sorry and a lot of times the National Weather Service will issue those tornado warnings based upon uh, radar indications
0: so you do have trained spotters I know national weather well- I actually sat through one of the training sessions once just to kind of get a feel for it, but there 's a training session that 's provided. Uh, for people who are trained spotters. I know some of the ham operators, which are amateur amateur radio operators, Uh, they normally get that kind of training and work with you if they see something uh, to get that uh, reported quickly as possible. Uh, But uh, it, it does take a little bit of training to know the difference between a thunderstorm rolling through a funnel cloud that you see with that circular motion and, of course, a tornado is not that hard to miss. But sometimes just seeing that storm that is uh, spawning a tornado you do really have to have some training to understand what those cloud formations mean I, talk a little bit about that
1: well it's a little bit ironic because we had our storm spotter training by the national weather service that on saturday and then you know we had the the tornado warning on on sunday early sunday morning saturday night the one thing that that we you know, do with our trained spotters is we're in communication with the National Weather Service through amateur radio and if they see something on radar, radar they will ask us if we have anyone in that area and if we do then we'll you know, have them see what they can see one of the big challenges for us here in the central part of the United States is we've all seen the tornadoes out in the plains and you know kind of that classic tornado look But then, part of the challenge here that we have, especially in Indiana, is that most of the tornadoes that we have are rain wrapped. And if you're not, you know, kind of in the right spot, almost behind the tornado, it's really difficult to see. And that's one of the reasons that we really, you know, recommend that people, you know, avoid that temptation to see if I, what, you know, can I see it? Most of the time, you're not going to see the tornado. It's going to, you're going to have to be kind of in that very, small window in the right spot, you know, in the, right place at the right time to be able to see it. But thankfully, you know, our trained storm spotters can tell the difference between scud clouds, which a lot of people will, um, you know, think that maybe they're very ominous looking clouds and they're moving quite a bit, but they're not really moving in that, uh, in that circular rotation. And then uh, that can lead to, you know, some false reporting. But it's really important that we do have those folks that do have that training from the National Weather Service to know what to look for and where to look for it.
0: Yeah, and that's training- training does spend some time on those scud clouds so don't be deceived by a a scud cloud that's not uh, a tornado and i i don't know we see sometimes these tv shows where people chase tornadoes i guess the bottom line there is if you're going to do that do not be an amateur you really need to know what you're doing and most of the people who do these tv shows do know what they're doing don't uh, try to do this in an amateurish way i think that's what we're trying to say
1: for sure and we do not have folks that you know are or tornado chasers or chase the storms in that regard. we really depend upon our network to be able to to look at what they see from their you know location knowing that they can get to a safe spot. One thing we talked about before we started this
0: uh I talked about some of the experiences I had working in the radio business where you know in those days before the internet uh, radio was where people turned the radios on normally if there was bad weather coming in, so we had a responsibility to be on top of it all the time uh, but uh tornadoes have happened in Indiana in all 12 months of the year. They tend to be concentrated in the spring, maybe occasionally in the fall, and we have had outbreaks, pretty bad ones in the spring, uh, even in recent years, not locally but in the state of Indiana, we certainly have ha- have seen that. Uh so April and May seem to be tough months for tornadoes, and that's just be- basically because of the clash of the of the cold and the and the warm air. Is that what I'm understanding? Too?
1: It is, and those are definitely you know we get into to april may and june those are typically uh, you know statewide when we see the most tornadoes but one of the the other things that we want to point out is that there's more damage and in, more injuries in indiana from severe thunderstorms than there are tornadoes just because they they do happen but they don't happen that often and that's one thing that's really important is that people you know, heed those warnings from the national weather service when a severe thunderstorm warning is issued because those severe thunderstorms can actually have winds that are much, you know, almost at tornadic uh, levels and can do some very significant damage. Uh, You know, they classified the damage in Cass County from last weekend at an EF zero, but most of the damage that they saw was actually due to straight line winds from a severe thunderstorm
0: i have seen the result of straight line wind damage it is scary and uh, you're right it doesn't take a tornado if there's a severe thunderstorm in the area you need to make sure you're in a safe place because what the biggest danger you have is something coming through your window and hitting you i mean it's that even if you're inside your home get away from the windows if you don't have a basement i that that's still i assume the the guidance you give people uh I want to talk about some another part of technology, something that's come in recent years, the use of drones. How does an operation like yours make use of drone technology?
1: We're really fortunate that we have... Um, uh, an unmanned aerial systems manager, UAS manager, and they manage our drone, our fleet of drones and training program. But the, we use that a lot for public safety operations and that can be, you know, search and rescue for uh, missing children or a missing Alzheimer's patient. Uh, we, we get called out for that quite a bit to be able to help support. Um, we've also supported law enforcement uh, when, unfortunately, when the, the police canine in Fishers was um, shot and killed, we were able Able to go out and actually locate that suspect and help direct officers to their location, and you know, and capture that apprehension on camera. And so, there's a lot of things that we do. But when it comes to severe weather, we had an unfortunate incident in Carmel just a few years ago where an individual lost her life when a tree um, fell, and you know, there was a lot of damage concentrated in that neighborhood. And one of the questions was, you know, is this a tornado that that touched down? And we were able to use the drone not only to just take pictures. but to make maps. And we programmed that in. The drone went through and flew that. We uploaded it into our Software and not only did that create you know what we call an orthomosaic or basically an aerial imagery of that neighborhood and the damage, but it also created a 3D model. And then we were able to give that to the National Weather Service, and then they were able to then you know easily determine that that was a microburst and not a tornado. We use that you know the drones also to help other county departments. It's not you know probably fiscally responsible for every department to have a drone. So if the parks department needs an updated map for an area or if the surveyor's office needs us to to fly an area that has drainage problems there's a whole host of things that we use those for and we're really fortunate to be able to have that resource and support not only our other county departments but also the municipalities uh, throughout the county
0: you know we're in uh, this is we're in early march uh we like to think that winter weather is behind us but it was 14 degrees <laughs> this the morning we're recording this overnight and there was some snow in southern indiana we were at least had the possibility of getting some it really didn't happen much here is mostly to our south but we can still see winter weather come in and winter weather can be extremely dangerous and and we haven't had a lot of that in in recent years here in Hamilton County. I think we've had some, but nothing like uh, blizzards or serious ice storms, the kind of things that can be deadly and take power out and that sort of thing. Uh, Just talk about what your role is when
1: winter, really serious winter weather hits. Well, we saw that winter storm warning that was issued for Hamilton County on February 1st. And leading up to that To that incident. One of the things that our chief planner, uh, Indiana Pratty, who's also our meteorologist uh, with his degree in meteorology and a member of the American Meteorological Society, we're really looking at what's going on with all of the different uh, components from the National Weather Service, the Weather Prediction Center, Climate Prediction Center, and we're putting a lot of that information together and making it really easy to understand. And then we're sharing that with the municipalities. And our key partners and stakeholders to ensure that they have an understanding of not only what's going on with the weather, but then what is it that we're doing. And if the situation, you know, calls for it, which that did, then we also will, you know, make sure that we're we're talking with with folks like the Red Cross. And you know others to ensure that if something were to happen and that storm were to be you know bad, then we have those components in place. You know whether it be the need for you know warming centers or shelters or emergency transportation for people, and we do that in partnership with Janus, who runs uh, Hamilton County Express. So we actually have a transportation plan in the event that there was or if there is an emergency, especially on the winter weather side, that we can you know provide. Emergency transportation, if it were to get that bad.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. In your emergency operations center, you have a seat for the Red Cross, and anytime there's an emergency, there's excuse me, always a humanitarian angle to that. So you do want to make sure they're right there and ready to help,
1: for sure. And I think that's one of the key things for us is that we may have one person from the Red Cross that's in the emergency operations center, but behind them is this army of people from you know Salvation Army to you know the Good Samaritan Network and others that are there and ready to help support. And that's really I think the big, you know, aspect of emergency management is we're not in charge of anything. We're just here to provide that information and coordination support.
0: You've been in the business of coordinating and dealing with emergencies here and elsewhere for a long time. What are some of the toughest emergencies you've had to handle?
1: Well, we deal with we deal with um, hazardous materials emergencies, and you know that's more on the scene coordination. We deal with, you know, other incidents in support of public safety of things like, you know, unfortunately, if someone's drowned, we've tried to help with, you know, recovery with drones and those sorts of things. But I think for me, you know, a lot of it, a lot of times is just that devastation when you see those large tornadoes or large swaths of straight line winds that, you know, where people have either lost their lives or they've lost everything. Uh, for me, definitely that the flooding of 2008, when we had, you know in southern central and southern indiana i was the response director for the indiana department of homeland security and i never thought in the state emergency operations center that we would have a repre- representatives from the coast guard mm-hmm. actually conducting rescues uh, you know of people on top of cars on top of houses and that was really a challenging situation we were fortunate that the the United States Marine Corps had a Marine Expeditionary Unit that was conducting training at Camp Atterbury. And uh, one evening, I had a Marine colonel come into the Emergency Operations Center and explain to me if I gave him a letter, he could help me for 72 hours. And it was later on, uh, just several hours later, that the Columbus Hospital was clearly not going to be able to get everybody out in time and uh, I wish I could have seen it because someone said it looked like something out of a movie that a little heli- they had helicopters coming to to you know transport people get them out of the hospital and they saw this smaller helicopter with the lights on come and kind of circle the hospital they thought you know this is great we've got one more helicopter coming in to do an evacuation and then it flew off but then kind of was just orbiting around the hospital and they were kind of confused and then the next thing they knew they saw all this line of lights in the sky and there were you know Chinook helicopters that came in and others and that was really what Uh, from what I was told from people on the scene that really helped, you know, save the the folks out of the hospital in time, you know, before the floodwaters got to the point that they couldn't get people out. So I would say out of the things that I've dealt with, that's probably one of the top ones where it just was, you know, people lost everything and didn't have anything. And it was really, um, that was really something that was went on for, I think, three weeks uh, that the state EOC was operated and, and very, very active.
0: Well, yeah, I lived in Columbus for four years and uh, was in that hospital many times for events. And I, when I heard about that flooding, it was just devastating for me because I knew a lot of people that worked in that building. Another thing is uh, there's nothing quite like going to a town, particularly a small town, that's been flooded and the waters recede. And it's just that ugly mud. And it takes so long to get that cleaned up. Uh, I think unless you've actually seen it, it's hard to understand just how devastating that is. But what's amazing is those towns do come back. People clean them up, and they come back to normal, and people come back to live there. That's the amazing thing. I want to ask you something else. Um, Obviously, emergencies are your business. What should people do? I mean, I, I've seen people who just don't plan at all for emergencies, and I see some people who are, like, obsessed with <laughs> with planning for emergencies. And, you know, I'm old enough to remember the fallout shelter craze in the 1950s and 60s, where people, now that I've learned more about nuclear weapons, that those probably weren't very effective anyway, but it was something people wanted to do, and it probably wasn't very a good, really a very good idea to you spend your money doing something else. What advice do you give people here locally uh, reasonable ways to just prepare for a possible emergency
1: well I think one of the biggest things for for really everyone is to try and get past that personal bias that it's not going to happen to me and you know it it can happen to you and if you can fight through that that really is is Critical, and you know you're right. You don't have to become a survivalist prepper, but I think one of the things that is just we really go off three simple things, and that's one just making a plan. What will you do if there's a tornado warning, or what will you do if there is a flood? Do you have electronic copies of important documents? Uh, The other piece of that is making sure that you have an emergency kit that you're you know ready to go, and that you have supplies for at least three days to be able to take care of you, your family. And your pets and then the third part of that is just making sure that you can receive information and that includes you know things like downloading our app it's free from the app store it includes weather alerts it has a live streaming weather radio that's available it has preparedness information and then also includes the ability for the public to submit reports directly to the emergency operations center and you know that may seem like a lot but there's a lot of great information at ready.gov and they have sample plans. They have checklists for kits, and then also you know information on how to receive that. To, you know to get info, additional information, and they also have information specific to children. And so I think that's really important that it doesn't have to be. You know, tornadoes can be scary, but at the same time, if there's a plan and you exercise that plan, that's really important. The other piece that we really recommend in that notification is making sure that every household has a weather radio. The outdoor warning sirens are only intended to warn people outside, so you really should not rely on a siren to wake you up in the middle of the night if there's a warning. And a weather radio will also work if the internet goes down. We we think that you know we're always going to have the internet or the cell phone, the cell tower is going to work, but we saw like in the Pendleton tornado where some trees uprooted some lines and it you know it cut off access to the internet and to the cell tower. Hours, basically removed the cellular connectivity there and left people without really anything. So the weather radio is a great resource and highly recommend that that every home have one.
0: Yeah, I've used in my new, when I worked in the news business, we had those in every newsroom and they were a key part of getting warnings out. Uh, that phone app you talked about uh, is it just Hamilton County Emergency Management? How do you how do you find that in the app store?
1: If you search for it, you want to search for Hamilton County Emergency Management, but you want to make sure that you get the Hamilton County Emergency management indiana well app. that was my point unless, <laughs> unless you want you know you're going to go to cincinnati then you could download the hamilton county ohio app but you definitely want to get the <laughs> indiana app
0: you'll be getting warnings for cincinnati and that will be of much use to you know i was we that's the thing when people get our hamilton county mixed up with cincinnati's hamilton county all the time um anything you'd like to add before we wrap this conversation up
1: I really think it's just important that people do take the time to try and prepare. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, a doomsday prepper, but just making sure that there are some key things of, you know, that you do have, you know, supplies or that you do have a copies of your electronic documents. That was one of the problems in the 2008 flooding was people's homes were just completely destroyed and they lost everything. And some people didn't even have identification cards or, you know, driver's license. And, it, you know, it's it really important to have a copy of those. The other thing I highly recommend is, you know, homeowners uh, should contact their insurance companies and find out what the cost of an earthquake writer is. A lot of times people forget that we are in an earthquake zone uh, in 18 uh, in the eighteen hundred 1811 1812 there was the New Madrid earthquake that happened in New Madrid, Missouri and a big difference between earthquakes here in central Indiana or in the central part of the United States versus California is many of those earthquakes are very shallow and towards the surface out you know, on the west coast versus here we have that limestone and bedrock and so when that 8.0 to 9.0 earthquake happened in New Madrid, Missouri, it actually rang church bells in Boston. And we do have areas uh, in Indianapolis and along the river here in Hamilton County that are considered liquefaction zones. And basically the frequency of that earthquake can cause that soil to become almost kind of soupy, almost like a quicksand. And, you know, so a lot of people don't think about the earthquake hazard that we have. And I believe I pay thirty dollars a year for my insurance uh, rider to, for earthquake coverage. And so it's really inexpensive. But without that, and we, if we were to have a major earthquake like that again, uh, it really could be you know very devastating for a lot of folks thinking that their homeowner insurance would cover that.
0: Excellent point. Shane Booker is the executive director for Hamilton County Emergency Management. Shane, thank you very much for sharing some time with me today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. If you like the podcast, please let others know. You can find it on most platforms where you go for podcasts. Just search using this phrase, podcasts by Larry Lannan, L-A-N-N-A-N. Also, if you listen on a platform such as iTunes, please take a moment, rate and comment on my podcast series. So thanks for listening, and please, be safe and be kind.